Good morning and welcome once more to our worship live stream. As the weeks go by during this pandemic and we're continuing to make hard choices and hard sacrifices, uh, we're still gathering together in this unique way around the Word of God to learn from Him His counsel and wisdom, especially in evil times. We'll be following the typical order of service, a shortened abbreviated pattern that you can download off our website as a PDF and print off at home or simply by following along with what's on the screen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die but live, and will proclaim what the Lord has done. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We pray. O God, you desire not the death of sinners, but rather that we turn from our wickedness and live. Graciously behold your people who plead to you and spare us. Withdraw the scourge of your wrath and be moved in mercy to turn away this pestilence from us. For the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. This week and next, we'll be finishing up our five-week walk through the book of Habakkuk, which is a book all about living life in evil times. The book began with the prophet Habakkuk's lament over the decadence of his society and the culture that had caused so much injustice. And then God replied that, shockingly, the cure Habakkuk seeks must be worse than the problem. An outside force, the powerful Babylonian Empire, will come and crush his already weak nation. And Habakkuk is stunned by this and basically asks, what kind of a solution is that? Yet Habakkuk faithfully awaits and accepts the Lord's will and ways and timing. So now, as we dig into the full second chapter, the Lord God offers a sweeping description of the kind of calamity that is going to fall upon his people. Now, we Christians read this book not only as history, but also as revelation. God wanted this specific passage available to you and your ears, and precisely for days like ours. In this reading today, God deconstructs what's evil about the Babylonians, the ones who are coming to crush Israel. But it would be a mistake for us to read this as being only about an ancient empire. This description is God revealing the nature of the human heart. Indeed, the historical Babylon pictured in Habakkuk here later became a biblical metaphor, a shorthand almost, to describe what the kingdom of this world is like in contrast to the kingdom not of this world, the kingdom of Christ to which we have been called. Now, I noted a few weeks ago that a crisis like ours can make you into either a far better or far worse person than you were beforehand. And I'm convinced which path you and I take will depend on whether you or I claim our citizenship in the kingdoms of this world, as revealed in Habakkuk, or whether you and I rest securely in our citizenship in the kingdom of Christ. So today, 
I'm going to read through Habakkuk chapter 2, and from that text, teach how to live faithfully in times of temptation. And with the blessing of the Holy Spirit, you will learn to honestly assess the temptation in front of you and to humbly return to the God who redeemed you. Now here is Habakkuk chapter 2, starting at verse 5. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous will live by faith. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. Because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their victim. Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed man's blood, you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain, to set his nest on high, to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed man's blood, you have destroyed lands and cities, and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol, since a man has carved it, or an image that teaches lies? For he who makes it trusts in his own creation, he makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The word of the Lord. Now, to be sure, that is a long list of sins there in Habakkuk chapter 2. There are social sins, the oppression of the poor to enrich the wealthy, there are environmental sins, the wasteful and wanton destruction of animals and natural resources. There are sexual sins, using wine as a prelude to rape. 
There are financial sins, enriching oneself through lies, deception, and extortion. There are national sins, plundering other nations through unjust war. And there are personal sins, harming one's neighbor, even to the point of death. And as always, when reading the Bible, it might be tempting to take comfort in how many of these sins on that list we think we haven't committed. After all, we are not the Babylonian Empire. But as always, we have to remember that lists like these enumerate the symptoms. And perhaps some of these sins are asymptomatic in your life. Nevertheless, we cannot escape the rebuke of Habakkuk chapter 2, because not only are the symptoms listed, so are the underlying causes. That list of sins is bookended by two verses that reveal what is at the root of all these behaviors. Uh, An arrogance and pride on the one hand, and idolatry on the other. Arrogance is, in the Bible anyway, any behavior in which we act as if we are Lord instead of God. We're taking something that's not ours, a position that's not ours. And such arrogance tends to show itself in angry impatience when our prosperity is threatened, bottomless doubt in the face of trouble, and flippant disregard of hard truths, because we are the Lord in our own mind and not the real Lord. And these are all ways in which we act as if our timeline, our purposes, and our plans are what set the agenda for life instead of God and his purposes and plans. Idolatry, then, in the Bible is taking otherwise good things and making them ultimate, taking what's relative and making them absolute. In that case, idolatry shows itself in many ways, including judgmental behavior or partisan bickering and dark despair. These are all ways in which relative or penultimate things, like social groups and political parties and career advancement, become so ultimate in our minds that they dictate and shape our every thought and action, even against the will and plans of Christ our Lord. And if arrogance and idolatry can conspire together to create a culture as wicked and destructive as the Babylonians were, then we can't pretend that the same arrogance and idolatry that the Bible says flow naturally from every human heart, we can't pretend that's not a threat to us today, especially in evil times, in particular during this pandemic. So you and I have no experience dealing with times like these, but Christians of the past did, and the long-standing Christian wisdom in times like these has pointed out that pandemics present special opportunities for sin powerful ways for arrogance and idolatry to run amok, which is why the first part of this week's sermon is about honestly assessing the temptation that you and I face. And one remarkable feature of a time like ours is that suddenly the most basic commands of God are thrown into sharp relief, and the temptations to transgress those commands is suddenly far more present than maybe it ever has been in our minds. The simple words of the small catechism have never seemed so relevant. For example, you take first the fourth commandment, which is all about honor, respect, and obedience toward authority. Christians of all ages, and Lutherans in particular, have long understood that the authorities that govern your life and mine are put there by God. They are God's representatives. The Apostle Paul clearly taught that. The governing authorities are given by God himself, and we are to submit ourselves accordingly based on that knowledge. And I know among the strongest temptations these days is to lash out in anger because we're frustrated 
as our God-given authorities grapple with the monumentally difficult task of leading their people safely through this pandemic. Indeed, the truth is there's a billion-dollar industry devoted to keeping your heart and mine in, in peak outrage, and its apps are installed in your iPhones and its content is streaming into your living room. That's a real temptation in front of us in a time like this. But this is not the Christian way. Why? For one, Christians understand that God himself has given our governors not only the office they hold, but also the difficult task they face. Also because Christians answer the call of Christ to watch and pray, and therefore we spend our time praying and supporting and encouraging those whom God has given such a difficult vocation. We bring our grief to God and our support to those God has given to protect us. Christians also have a habit of self-examination that reveals how difficult it is for us to handle adversity on a personal scale in our own lives, and therefore we've cultivated a spiritual imagination mature enough to grasp what it might possibly be like to handle adversity on behalf of millions of people. Also because the civic demeanor of a Christian is marked by virtue and honor and compassion and a deep care for what is good, all coupled with an uncanny demeanor of peaceful calm knowing that the Lord is Lord and not us. The Apostle Peter also wrote about this in the second chapter of his first letter. It was after urging Christians once again to submit to the governing authorities of his day, Peter wrote, Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. A particular challenge for us is that we have long viewed the world in terms of what I have a right to do, but if there was ever a time to remember, it's now. That one has a right to do what he wants does not mean everything he wants to do is right. Now, whatever you are making of these days, we do know this. Days like this, these are a time that is called a visitation of God, a rebuke, a call to repentance. We must beware the unique temptation to sin against the fourth commandment in these days, Arrogance and pride says that you and I are Lord and not God, but God remains Lord, and he has established the governing authorities to uphold life, to praise and promote what is good, and to punish those who transgress. That is the will of the Lord revealed in his word. Then there's the fifth commandment, which is all about preserving and protecting the life of your neighbor. Once again, Christians of all ages, and Lutherans in particular, have long understood that the letter of God's law against murder very clearly includes also the spirit of doing what you can to preserve and protect life and to avoid unwittingly causing harm to others. The civil authorities given by God reflect this fact by treating not only murder as a crime, but also manslaughter, the often unintentional but nevertheless very real taking of human life. The spirit in the letter of God's law is reflected in our civic governance. And perhaps, once again, never in our lifetimes will the fifth commandment be so broadly relevant as it is today. The sad fact about any communicable disease is, is that you can give it to others, but especially a novel one against which no one is yet immune and which we do not yet fully understand its effects. You can give that to a large number of people who will in turn give it to a large number of people until the consequences of, of your behavior and mine can spread to many thousands of people and actually lead to many, many deaths. So you see, a pandemic like this is a serious test 
of the degree to which Christians are willing to submit themselves to the fifth commandment, a serious test of our moral character and reasoning. Indeed, a pandemic like this one is a particularly difficult test for American culture, which we've grown up in, because our conception of freedom is largely the idea that we can and should be free to make our own decisions about our lives without any regard to the effects of the dec those decisions on those around us. Yet that is not the Bible's definition of freedom. Remarkably, God has visited upon us a test that asks us which version of freedom we will hold to our own, which is built on the assumptions of our own thinking, or God's idea of freedom. And how we will respond will shape the rest of our lives. See, the Bible calls us to faith, to hope, and to love. And in particular, love of neighbor. It's what all the commandments are about, loving God and loving neighbor. I wrote about this when we first heard about the coming shutdowns in our community. Christians are called to deny themselves and make deep sacrifices for the good of their neighbor. What we are doing together to protect our neighbors is done out of love, not out of fear, not really even out of compulsion either. If Christians are distinct for anything, they are distinct for how much they treasure life. Now is a time for us to put our faith into action and bolster the credibility of our witness. You and I must honestly assess the temptation before us. Never in our lifetime has the law of God seemed so clear, and yet never in our lifetime has our entire culture paid so much attention to what the Christian gospel so magnificently addresses, sin and death. Yet never in our lifetime have we had such a dangerous opportunity to heap sin upon sin with compound effects and to discredit our witness and possibly squander a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to share the love of God with our neighbors. Let us turn from the arrogance that says we are Lord and not God, and the idolatry that makes our things ultimate and God's only temporary. Let us watch and pray that these troubling times be a time where we look back one day as our finest hour and our greatest witness. In other words, let us humbly return to the God who has redeemed us. See, this word of God today is chock full of stern rebukes, all of which are fruitful and necessary when our sin and God's commands is thrown into such sharp relief by our circumstances. But this text is also concluded and wrapped up with a flash of God's glory. Indeed, this, this is the Christian way, that we honestly address the challenges ahead and then navigate them by faith and in hope. The last verse of this text today simply says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Now that's a verse of God's providence. The Lord is pictured sitting in his holy temple. He's on his throne. He is Lord, not us. He is ultimate, not our ways. Nothing we have crafted will last, but only he does. He is everything our arrogance and idolatry is not. He is in control. Which, by the way, threatens our own idols. But it is a remarkable comfort in our time. But maybe not in the way you think. See, often folks think of God's providence almost like a magic that God has some situation room in heaven where he's always monitoring for emergencies and magically helping you escape from all your predicaments and even your self-sabotage. But that's not quite the way it works. Now, God's providence doesn't negate our personal responsibility and the need to be wise stewards of the resources and the people and the, the various things that we have in this life that care for us. 
It's just that God takes whatever happens and through it works his ultimate plan to undo everything that is evil and make all things just and right in the end. So we live in these days knowing God can turn evil into good. In fact, that's what he does all the time. But we do not conclude, therefore, that we should be evil so God can turn it into good. The Bible explicitly prohibits that. No, quite the opposite. We reason that if God can turn evil into good, and that's what he will do, imagine what he can do with, well, something that's good. Maybe an illustration at the end will help. Consider the story of Jacob. He lost his family. He wandered for years. He saw pain and hardship and loss and distress. And all of it, the natural result of his being a devious scoundrel, all of it, the natural consequence of his actions. Yet through that all, God guided him to meet a woman and form a family. And through his wife, God carried on the ancestral line of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what are we supposed to make of that? What do we make of an arrogant idolater like Jacob whose actions created a culture of ruin and death all around him, yet through which God brought redemption to all? I mean, was the coming of Jesus Christ really God's plan B? No. Even though a scoundrel and sinner, even through a scoundrel and sinner, could God bring ultimate good? The Lord is in his temple. The Lord has always been in his temple. He has orchestrated every moment of history to ensure that the time was right for him to step in, to become human, to die for the sins of mankind, to take away your guilt and shame, and to rise for the life of all who believe, to rise for your life, the life of the baptized. God has bent history. He is bending history now for your eternal good. He has rescued you from the arrogance of being your own Lord and the idolatry of living ultimately for what is only temporary. He has given you citizenship in a new kingdom, and yes, he has given you even these troubling days, that you may use them for his glory, that you may be part of the solution and not part of the problem, that you can serve people and not harm them, that you can glorify God by keeping his commandments, and seize an opportunity to be, be the salt and light of the gospel in a dying world. See, when evil times come, people can get cynical, angry, they can blame others. That is the way of the world. We see it all around us. But Christians are the opposite. We are not Babylon. We are the kingdom of Christ. We are humble, hopeful, gentle, and loving. Because the Lord has brought us from death to life. The Lord is in his temple. It's safe for us to be gentle and humble and hopeful and loving. Because the Lord rules and reigns for our good. The Lord is in his holy temple. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We'll now continue with our prayers. Hear us, merciful Father, as we pray for ourselves, for the church, for our nation, and for all conditions and manner of people. God of mercy, keep us from the doubts and fears that cripple us and prevent us from knowing the fullness of your saving peace and gracious presence. Teach us to trust in your word and to believe with all our hearts, minds, bodies, and strength in Jesus Christ, crucified for our sins and raised for our justification. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of grace, bestow upon your church your Holy Spirit and all the gifts that come down from on high. 
Grant to us faithful pastors who will preach faithfully and give us ears to hear your word proclaimed. Sustain us while apart and bring your scattered church together again quickly. Give us boldness in your witness before the world and courage to speak your name without fear. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of power, give courage and strength to those persecuted for the faith and comfort the families of martyrs. In uncertain times, keep your church from being tossed about by the winds of change. Keep her steadfast in the doctrine of the apostles and the faith once delivered to the saints. Help us to admonish those who have fallen away and to restore with gentleness those who have wandered from the truth. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of might, Counsel the nations and their leaders to act wisely in all matters. Bless us with faithful and just leaders of character who will protect the sanctity of life and defend us against all enemies. Make us wise and discerning citizens who use the gift of liberty for noble purpose. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of love, teach us to love one another as you have loved us. Guide us to make manifest the love and strength of Christ to our troubled and fearful world. Deliver us from disease and everything else that would threaten our homes and families. Protect the police, firefighters, disaster relief workers, and medical personnel who attend to us, as well as the places where we live and work. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of comfort, give your aid and relief to all who suffer want or need, to the sick and their afflictions, to those troubled in mind, and to those to whom death draws near. Heal and sustain them according to your gracious will, and preserve them in faith to eternal life. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of hope, be with those who grieve the loss of a loved one. Point them to the promises of the resurrection and the gift of everlasting life to all who die in Christ. Deliver us from distractions that we may focus on your needful word and so be found faithful when our Lord returns in his glory. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of compassion, bless us with the good gifts of the earth, with the fruits of our honest labors and with kind and generous hearts. Accept the worship of our hearts and voices along with the tithes and offerings we bring in gratitude and thanksgiving. Look with mercy on the unemployed and open our eyes and hearts to the needs of the poor that we may serve them in your name. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. O blessed God and Lord, hear the prayers of your people and teach us to trust in your will to answer our prayers with all that is needful and beneficial, both for us and for all for whom we pray. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, as, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with favor and give you peace.